This is American History TV's Lectures in History podcast. This week, a class on CBS News anchor Walter Cronkite and his pessimistic assessment of the Vietnam War in 1968. Greetings, everyone. Today, we will take up the mythical case of the Cronkite moment. The Cronkite moment of 1968 and its supposedly profound implications for U.S. policy. The term Cronkite moment is used to describe the purported and powerful effects of a single television report aired on the evening of February 27, 1968, a program in which the anchorman of CBS News, Walter Cronkite, delivered a detailed and downbeat assessment, a half-hour report about the U.S. military action in Vietnam. And unlike the cases, say, of William Randolph Hearst and yellow journalism in the Spanish-American War, the Cronkite moment casts journalists in more heroic terms, asserting essentially that journalists can make a difference, can make a demonstrable policy difference as they tell truth to power. So at the essence, that's the Cronkite moment's implications. His words, Cronkite's words, were supposedly so powerful that night that they supposedly swung American public opinion against the war in Vietnam. And supposedly, Cronkite's assessment came as a sudden, decisive, clarifying epiphany to the President of the United States, Lyndon Johnson. Johnson, upon hearing Cronkite's televised assessment, supposedly said something to the effect of, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America, or something along those lines. And a month later, Lyndon Johnson announced that he would not seek another term as US president. That's a rarity. Seldom do sitting presidents announce that they are not going to seek reelection. Before we drill down into the Cronkite moment and the elements of this mythical occasion, let me provide some context about the war in Vietnam. And before the conflict in Afghanistan, the Vietnam War was America's longest armed conflict. Some 58,000 US military personnel died in Vietnam. And there were many tens of thousands of deaths of combatants and civilians in the countries of Southeast Asia during a 20-year period from 1955 to 1975. America's troop presence in Vietnam was most pronounced from 1965 until 1963. It peaked in 1969 with more than 540,000 U.S. military personnel in the country. And they were deployed there to help prevent the communist North Vietnamese from consolidating their power over the southern portion of the country, over South Vietnam, which was a US ally at the time. This turned out to be a losing struggle. In 1975, North Vietnamese forces took over the South and consolidated their power. The last US forces had been withdrawn from Vietnam two years before. The U.S. began to deploy combat troops to Vietnam in 1965, and by, 19, by the end of 1967, the Johnson administration was characterizing the war 
as improving, as having reason to believe that there was optimism ahead, that the course of the war was progressing well. Those rather upbeat characterizations about the war were severely challenged in late January 1968, when North Vietnamese forces and their allies in the South, the Viet Cong, launched surprise attacks across South Vietnam, across all the urban and town centers of the country. These attacks were timed to coincide with a truce that had been declared for the Tet Lunar New Year. And the offensive became known as the Tet Offensive of 1968. At that time, in 1968, there was a top-down media landscape in the United States, essentially. There were three television networks. There were a handful of local television stations in the country. And it was nothing at all akin to the fractionalized and diverse media landscape that we have today. Walter Cronkite was the anchor of one of three nightly news programs, network nightly news programs, each of which lasted 30 minutes, 30 minute digest of the day's events. And occasionally, Cronkite participated in special news reports on important topics. And this is what he did in late February, 1968. He went to Vietnam that month to report on the effects of the Tet Offensive, the surprise Tet Offensive that had begun at the end of January, 1968. So with that context in mind, let's listen to the closing portion of the 30-minute special report that Cronkite aired on CBS News on February 27th, 1968. This is when, at the end of the program, Cronkite delivers a downbeat assessment about the war in Vietnam. To say that we are closer to victory today is to believe, in the face of the evidence, the optimists who have been wrong in the past. To suggest we are on the edge of defeat is to yield to unreasonable pessimism. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. On the off chance the military and political analysts are right, in the next few months we must test the enemy's intentions in case this is indeed his last big gasp before negotiations. But it is increasingly clear to this reporter that the only rational way out then will be to negotiate not as victors, but as an honorable people who lived up to their pledge to defend democracy and did the best they could. This is Walter Cronkite. Good night. With that, with those closing remarks, President Johnson, who supposedly was watching the program, turned to an aide or aides and said something to the effect of, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America, that he suddenly, the president suddenly had this great insight that his war policy in Vietnam was a shambles. And a month later, he announced he would not seek reelection. But as we'll see in a moment, Johnson did not see the program, the Cronkite News Report, when it aired that night in February 1968. And as such, it's difficult to fathom how Johnson could have been much moved by a television program he did not see. So we'll take that up and other points 
in a moment, but let's drill down on the Cronkite moment of 1968. So as we saw, Cronkite closed his program that night, his half hour special report with a pessimistic assessment, a downbeat assessment saying the United States military effort was mired in stalemate in Vietnam. And he suggested that a negotiated settlement might offer a way out down the road sometime. At the White House, Johnson, the president, was supposedly watching the program. And upon hearing Cronkite's remarks, he leans over and snaps off the television set and tells an aide or an aide, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. Or something to that effect, supposedly. This report by Cronkite supposedly, at least historians, some of them, and years later, said it has it had the effect of shaking the nation and that it swung public opinion from favoring the war in Vietnam to opposing it, a dramatic shift caused by the Cronkite program. Other presumed effects were that, according to David Halberstam, a journalist, a prominent American journalist who wrote the book, The Powers of the Bee in 1979, Halberstam writes in that book that Cronkite's program about the war in Vietnam marked the first time in American history that a war had been declared over by an anchorman. But what really happened that night? We know that Johnson did not see the program when it aired. We know that public opinion had begun shifting against the war in Vietnam well before Cronkite's program. We know that stalemate, to characterize the war in Vietnam as a stalemate, was hardly a novel or original characterization in 1968. And we also know that version variability, which can be a marker of media myths, imbues the supposed reaction of the president. So we'll take a look at each of these factors and a few others during this presentation. First of all, where was Lyndon Johnson? As I say, he was not at the White House. He was in Dallas, he was in Austin, Texas at the time of the Cronkite program. He was there to attend a black tie birthday party, the 51st birthday party for a political ally of his named John Connolly, the governor of Texas at the time. And when Cronkite was intoning his downbeat pessimistic assessment about the war being stalemated, Johnson wasn't lamenting the loss of Cronkite. He was offering a lighthearted toast to John Connolly and his 51st birthday. Johnson said on that at that moment, today you are 51, John. That is the magic number that every man of politics prays for. Simple majority. Now, this probably isn't the greatest joke ever told by a sitting US president, but for Lyndon Johnson, it wasn't bad. In any case, the point here is that he is not lamenting the loss of Cronkite in fact, he's not even in front of the television set to watch the Cronkite program. He's in Austin, Texas at a black tie birthday party for a longtime political ally. It's also important to keep in mind that in the aftermath, in the days and weeks that followed Cronkite's report, Johnson remained publicly and adamantly hawkish about the war in Vietnam. He continued to call for a national effort to win the war in Vietnam which is hardly the reaction that you would expect if he had been much moved by Cronkite's program. 
in the days and weeks after the program, when the influence of the Cronkite moment should have been most strong, Lyndon Johnson is calling for a renewed national effort to win the war. Another element in debunking this mythical tale, the Cronkite moment, is that public opinion against the war had already begun shifting many months before the Cronkite moment show. And we know this because George Gallup and the Gallup organization began in 1965 to ask a question, which it raised periodically in its polling. Do you think that the United States made a mistake by sending troops to fight in Vietnam? The first time the Gallup organization asked this question was in the summer of 1965, not long after the buildup, the escalation of US forces in Vietnam had begun. And at that time, in August, September 1965, three in five respondents, 60% of the respondents to this poll said, no, it had not been a mistake to send US troops to fight in Vietnam. Gallup continued to ask the question, periodically, intermittently. And in October of 1967, a little more than two years after asking the question for the first time, opinions had clearly shifted. A plurality of 47% of respondents said, yes, it had been a mistake to send US troops to fight in Vietnam. And at the end of February, Gallup asked the question again in a poll, a poll that was completed on the day of the Cronkite program, which aired at night. So before the Cronkite program aired, Gallup had wrapped up its poll and found that nearly 50% of Americans, 50% of the respondents, 49%, said yes, it had been a mistake to send troops to fight in Vietnam. Quite clearly, opinion about the war in Vietnam had been shifting for weeks and months before Cronkite's pronouncement. And that pronouncement, his opinion about Vietnam, the stalemated effect, was hardly remarkable for the time, hardly unusual, hardly novel. Mark Kurlansky, Kurlansky who wrote a fine book about the year, the tumultuous year that was 1968, he wrote in that book that Cronkite's opinion was hardly radical for the time. And the New York Times had been using, among other news outlets, had been using the term stalemate to characterize the war in Vietnam for months, months before Cronkite and his program at the end of February, 1968. In early August, 1967, the New York Times carries a front page news analysis titled, The Signs of Stalemate. And in that article, in that news analysis, it cited disinterested observers as saying that victory for the United States in Vietnam is not close at hand and it may be beyond reach. Here's an image of that front page news analysis titled Vietnam, the Signs of Stalemate, published nearly seven months before the Cronkite program. In the New York Times report, in its news analysis, it included this paragraph, stalemate is a fighting word in Washington. President Johnson rejects it as a description of the situation in Vietnam, but it is a word used by almost Americans here, meaning in South Vietnam, except the top officials to characterize what is happening. So the point here is that stalemate, the term stalemate, had been used widely and frequently to characterize the US military effort in Vietnam. 
well before, well before the Cronkite moment, well before late February, 1968. So a question for you all is whether Cronkite's having said stalemate, does that make a difference? Does it somehow matter more if Cronkite said it? And if so, how? Or was Cronkite not just playing catch up with the rest of the news media, with the rest of the national news media in 1968? So let me stop this, the presentation here for a moment and ask for your observations, responses to those questions. Does it matter somehow? more if Cronkite was the one who said stalemate? Or wasn't he just playing catch up by February 1968? Shane, please. Um, I think in regard to whether or not Cronkite played a role, I'm more inclined to believe he's catching up. I think there are a lot of contextual factors surrounding the tech offensive that really interest me when considering the media popularity at the time. I think when I was in high school first learning about the TED offensive, I learned it as kind of a news event that it was happening with kind of the inception of color TVs in a lot of households um, and color TVs and news reporting. And I think there's something to be said about the fact that not only was this statement something that had been precedented by other reporters, but that there were a lot of events and changes to how the news was getting reported and, and being distributed and to what extent it was vivid and immediately presented to the American public in a way that I think fascinating enough to consider impactful. There is no doubt that there was this technology, technological developments in news gathering, in broadcast news gathering, in the late 1960s, and in the war in Vietnam, there was there was a, a greater ability to transmit film or videotape actually more quickly than than previously, and so some of the reporting from Vietnam was available almost within the same day, network news back in the States was able to, to capture and, and to broadcast reporting from Vietnam that, that was taking place the same day. Now, much of this reporting though, tended to be up until the Tet Offensive of 1968, tended to be very positive and very supportive of the US military effort. And, and scholars who have examined television coverage of the, of the war in Vietnam, these include, scholars include uh, Daniel Hallett, wrote a book called The Uncensored War, found that for the most part, television reporting was very supportive, tended to be very supportive of the US military effort rather than very critical of it. So that tended to shift a little bit as, as the Tet Offensive and its effects sunk in, but I think it's a mistake to characterize Cronkite as having led that effect to, or led that effort to change perceptions about the war in Vietnam. Because as I said earlier, public opinion had quite clearly begun shifting against the war and television was playing catch up in some ways to public opinion. Dylan. Yeah, I think that while like he didn't start this like mass movement of people believing that it was a stalemate or anything, I think we do need to remember how trusted Walter Cronkite was and how viewed he was. Like while President Johnson may of not actually been watching the TV and turned it off all dramatic and being like, oh, well, it looks like I lost. Um, millions of Americans were watching this and whether or not they were a little bit um, against the Vietnam War at this point, because the numbers were so close as, as we just saw, the numbers were not drastically different. It was 49, what, 44 
uh, was it a mistake? Yes, no, something like that. If yeah, I... forty-nine, forty-two at the end of February. But the, yeah. I think an important point, just to keep in mind, though, Dylan, is the is the shift, is the yeah. movement away from supporting the war to opposing it. No, I, 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 uh, I, I think you're right about that. But I'm, but I'm more saying like Walter Cronkite saying something still had, I believe, still had some impact on how Americans thought about the war in but not to the extent that we like to give him credit does that does that make sense like i believe sure. it mattered because he did have a lot of sway with the american people he was trusted so when he did say hey it's a stalemate maybe some people that weren't inclined to believe other reports were were like oh maybe it is a stalemate maybe there is something to this he did uh come to be called the most trusted man in america but as we'll see when we resume the PowerPoint presentation, that came well after 1968, and it was largely due to publicists at CBS News using a poll, a survey in which Cronkite had been designated as the most trusted man in America, a poll that included only one journalist, Cronkite, and the others were national U.S. politicians, including Richard Nixon, Hubert Humphrey, Edmund Muskie, and the like. So Cronkite being measured against, in terms of trust, being measured against politicians came out ahead. And the CBS publicist ran with this as, as evidence, as advertising evidence for Cronkite being called the most trusted man in America. And that, and that characterization stuck. But we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. So let's go back to the uh, PowerPoint presentation and resume that drilling down on the Cronkite moment. And in particular, it's important, I think, not to lose sight of, of the fact that his views, Cronkite's views were not dramatically different from what was becoming mainstream opinion in early 1968. The Wall Street Journal, conservative publication, conservative editorial board, four days before the Cronkite program, said in an editorial about the war in Vietnam that the U.S. effort there may be doomed and that everyone had better be prepared for the bitter taste of defeat beyond America's power to prevent. The Wall Street Journal was not saying the United States is mired in stalemate. It was saying that the war effort there, the American war effort there, may be doomed and that everyone had better be prepared for the bitter taste of defeat. A far more dramatic line, a far more adamant line, than Cronkite's mired in stalemate characterization. And also version variability characterizes and infuses the Cronkite moment. And this is another marker, potential marker of a media myth. If we can't get the version straight as to what Johnson, the president supposedly said in response, then we have some doubts whether this tale, this anecdote is accurate. Over the years, there have been many versions of what Johnson supposedly said in response to the Cronkite declaration of stalemate in Vietnam. If anybody's words should be captured with fidelity, with accuracy, it should be those of the president of the United States. His stuff is, is transcribed, is kept verbatim all the time. But this is what Johnson supposedly said in the aftermath. There is no single 
agreed upon version of Johnson's supposed remarks upon hearing Cronkite's stalemate assessment. If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost middle America. If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the war. If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the American people. If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the country. If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost America. Well, that's the end of the war, according to one version. And another is, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the Midwest. I maintain that version variability of this magnitude is a marker of a media myth, that this story is likely apocryphal. And to embrace the presumed power of the Cronkite moment really is to embrace the dubious magic bullet theory of media effects. The magic bullet theory, which proposes that media audiences take in media messages and are profoundly, immediately, viscerally moved by them. That the magic bullet effect has a powerful and immediate effect on its audiences. The media messaging has a powerful and immediate effect on media audiences. And that's what's at work here if you buy into the Cronkite moment. His words had supposedly a powerful, a sudden, and decisive effect on the thinking of the US president, as well as the public. Also, to embrace the Cronkite moment is to ignore a vigorous pro-war speech that Lyndon Johnson himself had given that very day, earlier in the day in February 1968. He was in Dallas, Texas at midday where he delivered a speech in which he declared there would be no breaking of America's word or commitments in Vietnam. The headline shown here is from the Chicago Tribune the next day. A banner headline on page one said, saying that Johnson's promising blood, sweat, and tears in Vietnam. And another headline about Johnson's speech that day appeared in the Los Angeles Times. And it says, as you can see, Johnson's stand is no Vietnam retreat. So to, to embrace the Cronkite moment which is to ignore the forceful speech that Johnson gave earlier in the day earlier that same day. It's inconceivable that Johnson's opinion about Vietnam would have shifted so dramatically from vigorous support for the war effort to realizing his policy was in shambles, merely on the words of a, crunk, of a, of a, of a network anchorman, Walter Cronkite. Not implausible perhaps, but it seems rather inconceivable and unlikely. But what if, what if Johnson had seen the Cronkite program at some later, if unknown, date on videotape? We know that the Cronkite program that night was videotaped. The White House had a crude videotaping system in which many newscasts and news broadcasts were, were videotaped. Would this have made a difference? Would this have been somehow a factor if, Johnson had seen it later, might he have had this same reaction? What do you suppose? What if he had seen this at some later date on videotape? Or is it more likely that his aides would have said, okay, Mr. President, you're about to watch a Walter Cronkite's special report in which he says the war in Vietnam is stalemated. By introducing this report before he actually sat down to watch it, would that have 
diminished or diluted the effects of what Cronkite was saying. So let's pause the presentation and, and go back to you all. What do you think? Does it make a difference if Cronkite had seen, or if Johnson had seen this program, the Cronkite programs, at some later date on videotape? Shane, please. I think if we're debating the idea of acknowledging it, we should question to the same extent why we have a need to, or what doing that would do for us here in our interpretation of media history. Because certainly it's important to acknowledge Cronkite and state his presence and influence over the American public. But then what does it mean as media historians then to assert that and to hypothetically confirm that he had watched this program at a later date. I think it's necessary certainly to acknowledge the influence, but to acknowledge it in that momentary specific way is I think to lean into the inclination of what the magic bullet theory offers, which is that direct simplicity, that easy anecdote, or at least that, um, that story that can be told somewhat succinctly to describe at a time how news anchors had a great influence on the American public's opinion of war, which is a point that can be made without, I think, the assertion of a hypothetical narrative. That, you know, there's a lot that we can lean on uh, when we're talking about the Vietnam War coverage. There's photographs and, and news documentaries produced during that time. You know, the footage has had a sense of itself. And yes, that speech as well. But I think there are specific instances that all have value to the situation. And to simplify that or to punctuate it with this particular newscast is an interesting prospect, but one I'd question the underlying um, emphasis on or choice to emphasize it. Interesting point. It's, it's one of those occasions in which a newscaster, a journalist, supposedly had a profound and immediate decisive effect on US foreign policy. So for a course in foreign policy in the press, this is an interesting, if historic anecdote. And if we can assess the likelihood of this happening or not, just as we can assess the likelihood of Hearst having told his uh, artist in Cuba, please remain, you furnish the pictures and I'll furnish the war. These are powerful anecdotes. That, that purport to tell us something about the, the interaction and the roles of the, of the news media and the shaping and, and conduct of US foreign policy. And they've been held up as such. They've been held up as such. The Cronkite moment is, is said to be an example of, of telling truth to power and the effects that that can have. If that's so, that's, that's important to realize. But if it's not, if there are doubts about the Cronkite moment and whether it really did have that kind of effect, that too is important to understand and to dissect. Olivia. Yeah, I was just gonna touch on the question that you asked a little bit more about the importance of when it took place. I think a recording wouldn't have the same effect. And if we're talking, that's the only way that it could have happened. There's so many other compounding factors at that point like would he have just watched the Cronkite's news special for that evening or would he wa have watched a bunch of different 
other news programs and the kind of the Cronkite myth relies on Cronkite being the most influential source and the person that he was watching at that time and paying the most attention to, which I think is important when we're talking about it being at a later date because there's just more factors than at that point. So do you think that those additional factors that you alluded to would have had the effect of diluting the power of Cronkite's message vis-a-vis the president? I think that it would have, I think diluted a little bit. I still think Cronkite was obviously the most respected journalist at the time period, the most respected journalist probably ever. So his words have a much higher impact than anyone else's, but I still think it wasn't some like, amazing moment it would have been later on where he would have already have heard about the newscast and heard about public opinion it wasn't like the first time he was hearing about this it wasn't he was like watching it live and really getting the full impact it would have been later when he's just like reviewing the news so I don't think I think it does dilute it right and I think he would have been introduced this program, this segment would have been introduced to him, to the president by an aide or aides to say, okay, Mr. President, you're about to watch such and such. Uh, he probably would want to know that. He probably would want to know that. It's interesting to keep in mind that Cronkite, over the years, he died in 2009, said, as particularly in his memoir, a memoir that came out in the 1990s, that he thought that this program had the effect of a of a straw on the back of a weakened camel. He didn't think at that time that the show, his program on Vietnam had had much of an effect on on President Johnson or on public opinion. He likened it to another straw on the back of a weakened camel. It's interesting though, over the years as as he grew older, he began to change his view about this. And late in his life, Cronkite thought that this program did indeed have a powerful effect. He came to buy into, if you will, the notion of a powerful effect of, of uh, that program. So it's an intriguing metamorphosis of his, of his viewpoints over the years. Let's uh, return to the, to the slides, folks, and uh, begin to, to wrap up. One of the reasons that this, that this Cronkite moment is so persistent and so defiant of debunking is that it offers something for everyone. There's the something for everyone syndrome at work here. And by that, I mean that across the political spectrum, this story, this tale, this anecdote reverberates. It offers something for everyone. It appeals to conservatives because it feeds suspicions among some of them that the news media were agenda-driven and untrustworthy, and that they contributed to America's defeat in Vietnam. On the other end of the spectrum, it appeals to liberals because it reinforces views that the war was immoral, should not have been fought, and television showed it to be such. Something for everyone. So what is our takeaway then from this discussion today? The Cronkite moment under scrutiny dissolves as a myth, as exaggerated, as apocryphal. And it's not so surprising really because seldom if ever 
Do the news media exert decisive influence on such major decisions as whether to go to war or to seek peace? These kinds of decisions typically are driven by forces and factors and personalities that are far beyond the media's ability to shape or alter or influence. And by the way, returning for a moment to the most trusted man in America characterization that Cronkite enjoyed for many years, it really did not take hold until 1972 about four years after the Cronkite moment. And this was after the poll that I had mentioned earlier was conducted and showed that compared to political figures, Cronkite was regarded as the most trusted man in America. CBS News publicists took up this poll result and turned it into advertising in the run-up to the 1972 presidential election. And here's a facsimile of a full-page ad that appeared in the Chicago Tribune on the day of the 1972 election saying re-elect the most trusted man in America. It was an advertising effort that really gave momentum to the most trusted man in America characterization of Walter Cronkite. I think it's important to keep in mind a few points from this presentation. One, that Johnson did not see the program when it aired. And there's no certain evidence that he saw it later on videotape. And even if he did, that the presumed effects of the, of the Cronkite moment rest on the belief in the magic bullet theory, that it had an immediate visceral and powerful effect on the president. As, and as we've seen, the magic bullet theory is disputed, even discredited. It's not widely embraced by media scholars as an explanation for how the news media apply or bring to bear their effects. It's seldom uh, an immediate effect akin to that of uh, the injection of a hypodermic needle. It's not how the news media bring to bear their effects. Also, another point to keep in mind is that describing the Vietnam War as a stalemate was hardly novel at the time. It was hardly an, an original interpretation about the Cronkite broadcast. Public opinion had begun turning against the war months before the Cronkite program, which is another point to keep in mind. And also in the weeks after the Cronkite report, Johnson publicly doubled down on his Vietnam policy. At one point he called for a total national effort, a total national effort to win the war. This was after, this was in mid-March, 1968, after the Cronkite report, indicating again, that what Cronkite said had no immediate effect on the president and his war policy. Now, these narratives certainly are interesting in themselves, but they also serve to promote larger interests. And in this case, one might ask, okay, what are those larger interests? And for the Cronkite moment, it remains a useful point of reference for contemporary journalists who often seem to be inclined to locate a new or up-to-date Cronkite moment as another high heroic moment in American journalism, as an example of journalists making a difference, the highest levels of policymaking. That is one reason this this tale, this anecdote, this Cronkite moment 
lives on. It serves a higher purpose, offering journalists an example of making a difference at the highest levels of policymaking. A lingering question that might remain is why then did Johnson decide at the end of March 1968 not to seek re-election to the presidency? This was a rarity. This was a rarity for a sitting U.S. president to, to decline to seek another term. And Johnson had won the presidency, a re-election to the presidency in 1964. He became president on the assassination in 1963, President John F. Kennedy. Johnson, his vice president, was elevated to the presidency and then won a term, his own term in 1964. In 1968, he decided against seeking re-election. There are a couple of reasons that explain that decision. One is that Johnson often said privately during his full term that he might not seek re-election in 1968. He at least held that possibility open. Another factor, perhaps even more important, were that his political fortunes were beginning to fade in March of 1968, in the aftermath of the Tet Offensive. By then, Eugene McCarthy, Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota had already begun an insurgent campaign for the Democratic nomination for president. McCarthy was out there as a candidate, as an option, as an anti-war option to Lyndon Johnson. And in March of 1968, in the first half of March 1968, Johnson fared poorly, surprisingly poorly, in the New Hampshire primary election. Eugene McCarthy won perhaps 42% of the vote, a surprising number, an astonishing result. McCarthy didn't win the election. Johnson, whose name wasn't on the ballot, received about 49% of the votes. It was clear, though that Johnson was wounded politically. If Eugene McCarthy could score that high of a percentage in an unexpected fashion in the first in the nation primary state, what, was his, what were his chances going to be later on? Johnson was looking at a real rough political road ahead of him. It was complicated by the emergence of the candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy, Senator Robert F. Kennedy, a younger brother of President John F. Kennedy. And Robert Kennedy announced in mid-March 1968 that he too was going to join the presidential sweepstakes, that he was going to present himself as a candidate for the Democratic nomination. And when he did so in mid-March 1968, he declared Johnson's Vietnam policy as bankrupt. So Johnson was facing an insurgent threat from his own party in 1968. It was becoming increasingly clear that he was going to have a tough time to win the nomination, that his chances in the upcoming Democratic primaries, including Wisconsin, later Oregon and California, were not really great. And the final factor that, that swung Johnson to decide not to seek re-election in 1968 was not the Cronkite moment, but was the counsel of an informal group of advisors called the Wise Men. So commonly called the wise men. These were foreign policy experts, including a former Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, an Undersecretary of State, other officials, including a Supreme Court justice who was very friendly to, to President Johnson, Abe Fortas. The 
the wise men had gotten together in November of 1967, and at that time largely had supported Johnson's war effort. They endorsed it. By late March 1968, the wise men were asked to meet again at the White House. And they, at that time, largely, if not unanimously, said, counseled Johnson to, to find a way out of the war in Vietnam, to, to make some changes to the war policy. And that came as a sharp surprise to Lyndon Johnson. So the, so the wise men and their counsel effectively turned Johnson's thinking against the war. And he announced on the 31st of March, 1968, that he was not going to seek re-election. So these wise men, these informal, informal advisors really turned Johnson against the war in Vietnam and made, encouraged him to change his, his view, his war effort, his war policy. So in, in wrapping up, our discussion about the Cronkite moment. I'd like to ask for your views, your opinions, your impressions as to what makes war a particularly fertile time for media myth-making. We've discussed the yellow journalism in the Spanish-American War period. Here's another example of a media myth related to war, the war in Vietnam and, Lind and Lyndon Johnson's decision not to seek re-election in the Cronkite moment. What are some of the reasons why that, in your view, war is such a fertile time for myth-making? Why does war give rise to, to media myths? Thoughts, comments, observations? Aladdin, please. I think that uh, war, um, war time, you don't get uh, a lot of objective information. So you get some facts from officials and you have no way of verifying those facts. So in a way that creates a fertile ground for uh, spreading misinformation, whether you do it consciously or if you do it um, unconsciously, that's misinformation. If you do it consciously, that's disinformation. But I think that's a big factor in um, news making during wartime. Do you think that uh, war is so alien to most Americans in terms of not having firsthand experience? Do you think that might be a factor in allowing myths to take hold because there is no frame of reference really for many people is to, is to figure out what, what, whether this story sounds right or is accurate, and therefore they're relying on, on, on media and, and media mythology? It might be to an extent, but I also feel that after the, the war in Iraq, after weapons of mass destruction theory, people now are questioning everything that justifies uh, military action, and they're more open to question authorities and uh, not really uh, have enough confidence in, in uh, reporting, especially when it comes to uh, military operation. Okay. I was thinking that, that people, many Americans do not have firsthand experience by which to judge or frame stories about, about warfare and wartime. And, and you mentioned the weapons of mass destruction that, that uh, you know, characterized the start of the war in, in Iraq, and uh, that turned out to be largely absent in that conflict. So I'm, I'm wondering if the lack of a first person 
frame of reference is, is an explanatory factor in the rise and propagation of media myths. Let's go to Olivia and then Tom. Um, we talked about this a little last class, but I think another um, portion of it is that these media myths kind of like wrap everything up into like a nice little box where you don't have to think about all of the reasons for the war or why the war is ending or why it's lasted so long. You can just kind of put on this very easy, memorable story and think about that instead. Um, and it's also a lot less, um, you have to think about the atrocities of the war a lot less if you can just reference this little anecdote. So as you say, it just sort of makes a neat and tidy box or frame, I guess, for us to, to understand some of the more complex elements of, of the war, why certain decisions are made, what turns people against the war, uh, why does the president decide not to seek re-election because, uh, because of the war or his, or his challenges to, to, his, uh, um, to his war policy. So yeah, those, those simplicity, I think you're right, goes a long way in, in helping to explain the persistence and longevity of, of media myths. Uh, Tom. Um, well, I mean, I would say that a major part of the sort of mythos of America is that any sort of decision that is made by the state on a large scale, such as war, has to at some level be traced back to public opinion at least in the minds of like most Americans, I think most people like to think that, you know, what we are doing overseas is an expression of our collective will. Um, so ultimately, you know, any sort of like political analysis or historical analysis that is trying to explain why a war happened, why, you know, why the things that happened in that war happened and why the war ended is going to depend on some sort of explanation for why public opinion changed in the way it did or why are the people in power changed uh their viewpoint based on that sort of public expression um and so i think ultimately then you you know where where do people get their information from they get it from media that's the only way that people are able to make decisions and come to sort of different um uh you know political conclusions um is by consuming media and using the information that they get from that to draw you know to come to some sort of position so i think that you have to like you know i think it's very easy to come up with sort of explanations that come back to media in terms of like figuring out why American politics behave the way that they do. And people do get information from friends, from family, from peers. They get it from multiple sources. It's just not they're sitting in front of a television set or whatever and taking this information in. They're, they're, they're getting it and they're filtering it through, through, through different lenses, uh, typically. That perhaps might make a difference? Tom, what do you think? I mean, I think that people obviously take information from their friends, they take information from family, but it's not like, you know, unless you have friends or family who are on sites where an event is happening, who are like relaying information to you as it goes, everything that you hear is ultimately relayed somehow through some sort of like either like through some sort of social mechanism. And I think that in general, that social mechanism is media. It's a way of, it's a way of transferring information on a large scale. And ultimately without media, you know, that doesn't really happen. I mean, you could say that something could be uh, spread through pure hearsay, but it would happen very slowly. Uh, and I doubt that like, 
um, when it comes to things like foreign policy, that could, you know, sort of like that sort of mass um, dissemination of information could happen without the um, existence of a sort of like uh, very large media infrastructure. About the passage of time, it's been 50 plus years since the Cronkite moment. It's been even longer since the purported claim of William Randolph Hearst to furnish the war with Spain. Does the passage of time kind of blur our understanding of these, of, of these conflicts and therefore contribute to a simplification of their causes or their ends or their conclusions? To what extent do you think the passage of time may be responsible here for the mythologizing of some of these moments, these media moments in which the media supposedly had such powerful effect on policy and policymakers. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say that's a general thing that we see throughout most historical narratives. You know, over time, things become more sort of like the way we think about particular events becomes more set in stone, I would say, and they become sort of more uh, bare bones and stripped down. Do they know. become more prone to mythologizing to, sure. to become yeah, more I, you know, tainted, if you will, by inaccuracy? I would say so, yeah. Other comments or thoughts or impressions, observations about why war is such a fertile time for media myth-making? Well, I can't add too much to what's been said, but I think a lot of how we think about war is just going it's a lot about fear um and fear changing how we pursue information how we inform ourselves i think there's so many factors um a lot of which could be attributed to time and what comes with time and that you know different groups of people are going to respond to global conflict differently are going to be at different proximity to the violences that are taking place um you know, for those who don't have an immediate experience of any conflict, who rely upon interme intermediaries and rely upon media companies, our, our reliance upon those things, you know, demands that we analyze global events with analogies based upon precedents, based upon other events and in comparison to other things so that we can contextualize it for ourselves when the experience is an immediate. Um, I think the passage of chat passage of time only exacerbates that to the extent that we need to an uncertain future demands a change of our relationship to the past and I think any time at which we like war in which we felt a great and profound sense of systemic uncertainty we feel an inclination to lean into certainty and lean into what can be known and what can be simplified into analogies and anecdotes that while they don't explain the entirety of a situation, allow some sense of control or at least solidity to our understanding of the past. Because solidity or to our understanding of the past is a solidity to our you know, notion of identity. Um, and to be in conflict and unsure of one's own identity is in incredibly jarring experience. And I think it forces us to acknowledge the role that media plays in constructing those narratives that ultimately contribute to notions of, yeah, who, who we are and, and what we're doing at any given point in history, what we're willing to fight for, toward what.
what of the what of the notion that that these tales about media are essentially taken by the by media media historians practitioners as examples of journalists at their best or journalists at their worst we saw William Randolph Hearst supposedly vowing to furnish the war with Spain in 1898, which we discussed as being apocryphal. We see now at the other end of the spectrum, Walter Cronkite telling truth to power and having a powerful supposed effect on the thinking of the president and the policy and, and pursuit of the war in Vietnam. One is, is journalists at their worst, if you will. The Cronkite moment shows journalists at their arguable best. Is this a factor in, in sort of presenting lessons for us to to take away years later is this an example is this a is this a factor in, in the durability and the tenacity of these media myths and we'll wrap up with that question i am inclined to think somewhat pessimistically about whether or not the goodness or badness of any particular moment of journalism you know that's something that we'll never understand in a contemporary and never have a consensus over. Uh, and when it's a question of history, it's always going to be a question of how we can argue the journal journalism as having been positive or as having been an accurate representation with a retrospective sense of truth. I think when I think about momentary lapses like this, like the Cronkite moment, as much as I'd like to attribute it to the comings and goings of or, or just like the missteps and, and forward steps of good journalism, it's difficult to because I think everything is a media myth so long, um, I don't know, everything in a myth is media unless the reality that we experience as the public matches it. Um, and we only have a conception of these things as myths and not solid truths um, because we believe it to match or not match, to be a good analogy or to not be a good analogy. And I, I guess what I mean to say there is like, the news consumer is consuming the bad and the good journalism contemporaneously at the exact same time. Um, and with no real sense that one might have some greater weight than the other, uh, other than in their extent, you know, the extent to which they're willing to fact check that, which I think for the majority is not a lot. And so the conception of a media myth, I think, uh, is just going to be something <laughs> that our notion of is only going to change for our, imagine, our imagination that it could, or that it does match the context or not. It, all this to say, it seems more rhetorical than anything. Whether I think it's important to keep in mind the working definition of a media myth, which is a well-known story about and or by the news media that is widely retold and widely believed, but which under scrutiny dissolves as apocryphal or wildly exaggerated. And I think that that process of scrutiny, of bringing to bear assessments related to the Cronkite moment, which we've discussed today, demonstrates that it does dissolve as apocryphal or wildly exaggerated. And nonetheless, in closing, I'd like to underscore that these narratives, particularly the Cronkite moment, remain a useful point of reference for us as, as media consumers, as well as journalists, 
because journalists are often looking to, to find, to locate more recent, up-to-date Cronkite moments. Another high heroic moment in American journalism when American journalists made a difference at the highest levels of policymaking. Thank you, folks. Thank you for your attention today. Thanks for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org. Thank you.